that loud enough yet? Anything? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Keep talking. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Anything in the speakers? Keep talking, keep talking. Here it comes, it's better. Morning one and all. Again, we're, this is now our penultimate real faith sermon. You'll either be pleased or utterly devastated to hear. So next week John's going to round off the series as he looks through the final part of chapter 11 of Hebrews and looking forward into Hebrews 12, a great glorious chapter, again all about our Jesus. But this is the second to last one looking at some of the characters in uh, Hebrews 11. Um, so since we're talking about Hebrews 11, if you'd like to turn to 1 Samuel 16. <laughs> I'll read a couple of verses from Hebrews 11 in a sec. But uh, you can turn to 1 Samuel 16, so you're ready. Let me just pray before we do that. 1 Samuel 16. Lord, we love you and we honour you. Lord, as we've reflected on the sacrifice of men who have given their lives for the name of true justice, for freedom, for protection of those who can't protect themselves, Lord, we honour your greatest sacrifice. And Lord, we just thank you so much that it wasn't a wasted sacrifice, it wasn't a wasted life you gave up. It's the ultimate sacrifice that we can never truly get our heads around. But Lord, as we delve into your word that you've revealed to mankind our Bible, Lord, as we dig deeper into this and look at one man's life, as we learn from his life and what it means to our lives, may you truly, by your Holy Spirit, help us understand what it is we need to do about it this week. Lord, let these not be wasted words. Lord, let this be your word that dwells in our hearts richly and makes a difference in our lives and in the lives of others around us. So, Holy Spirit, help us to do that this morning. Help me. Amen. So, yes... Hebrews 11, we've been looking at people who've lived their lives in light of the big picture. That's the point of Hebrews 11. These people had a greater hope, they had promises set before them that God had granted them, either through the prophets, through the word, or directly to them. And they were living in light of these promises. Not all of them saw these promises come true. Ultimately, we're all still waiting for some of these promises to come true. The whole point of the Bible is the Old Testament lists all of God's great promises and the New Testament lists all of those promises coming true. That's, the, that's, that's what the Bible's all about, isn't it? And a lot of these people in Hebrews 11, lot of these great characters, some of them flawed in huge ways, weren't they? Yet God still used them, and the point of them having faith was about that they trusted him. Despite the circumstances, despite character flaws, they trusted him as their Heavenly Father, looking forward to the great hope that was set before them as we find out Jesus did as well in Hebrews 12, which I'm sure John will bring into the frame next week. So today, one final time, we're going to look at verse 32 of Hebrews 11. I'll read it out for you, don't worry. But there was that, remember, that was that list of names. All of a sudden you get this barrage of names. He's running out of paper and quickly, I haven't got time to tell you about these other guys. And there's one name missing that we haven't looked at yet. Right to the Hebrew says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, and so on. So David is the one guy we haven't looked at. And that's who we're going to be looking at this morning. 
He's one of my favourites. I've fallen in love with guys like Nehemiah and Ezra because of the preaching series we've done recently. And those, those guys are guys I've really kind of, oh, I've got my teeth into their lives and just really understand the core of these guys. But David, ever since I was a kid, I've, I've loved the story of King David. You, Sunday school, you get David and Goliath, don't you? But who was this guy really? About 1,000 years BC, so about 3,000 years ago or so, David lived on this earth and his life story is recorded in the books of Samuel, books of Kings, books of Chronicles. And this guy, he was God's anointed king after King Saul. Remember, Julian shared last week about Samuel and how God used him to anoint a king. The people wanted a king. They were now in the promised land after being rescued from slavery, after hundreds of years in Egypt. They're now in the promised land uh, judges lead them for a while, hugely flawed people yet again that we've already heard about. The people wanted a king. And God was like, am I not your king? So he gave them what they wanted, let them learn. And so Saul was anointed. Samuel the prophet was used to anoint King Saul. Samuel the prophet, we'll also learn, was used to anoint King David. He was God's man. Saul was a flawed character. He was anointed by God. He was put in that place as king. But he ended up being less a called man and more a driven man. There's a big difference. David was a man after God's own heart. And God honoured that and raised him up as king. So here's David, a young man who gets anointed as king. Doesn't become king straight away, but he's anointed, set apart for that purpose. But I mean, when I say David to you, what, what things spring to mind? Go for it. Shout some out. Psalms. Psalms a big one. He wrote a huge chunk of our psalms. Great songwriters known as, uh, was it the sweet psalmist of Israel? Israel's singer of songs, isn't he? What else? He danced. He danced, he did. He's a re- he had a real heart of worship, not just in music in general, and he just overflowed into his musicality, didn't it? He did, he danced before the Lord. Friendship with Jonathan. Friendship with Jonathan. Saul, the king I was mentioning just now, his son Jonathan. Him and David were closer than many other people ever. Hugely close, and some people misconstrue what was meant by that. But yeah, very, very close to Jonathan. Great brotherhood there. What else? Praise God in all he did, he did. You can read in the Psalms, you see where his heart was at in some dire, dire circumstances he's in, but he still turned them around to praise. What else? Defeated Goliath. Defeated Goliath, of course. This guy is well known for big things. For the Psalms, for the songs he wrote, having a real heart for worship and dancing, undignified as he gets described before the Lord, before the people as well. And for things like Goliath as well. I mean, to, to get to marry his first wife, Michael... He has to go and collect 200 Philistine foreskins. A big bag. It's a bit gruesome, but that's quite a feat, I have to say, regardless. It was David, not Saul, who defeated the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians and the Edomites. It wasn't King Saul, that was David did that, acting as a general of the army. It was David who captured a city called Jebus from the Jebusites. When the God's people came into Israel, they didn't rout out the Jebusites and they remained in their city called Jebus. It was David who conquered that city and it became the city of David, Zion, also known as Jerusalem. He conquered that, no one else did. He was king of Judah, a small part of God's people, king of Judah for seven and a half years and together Judah and Israel as a whole nation, he ruled them as their king eventually for 33 years. It's quite a feat, isn't it? There's stories of his mighty men, Great stories, I love those. I'd love to see a film all about David's mighty men. It'd be amazing. And of course, David and Goliath, the famous Sunday school story most of us know, at least in part. Huge great story, it's immense. But I was, I was looking at all these things and I think, what, 
out of all of David's life story, what can I bring this morning? I don't want to focus too much on one particular event in his life and miss the point of why he's in Hebrews 11. It's about the man himself, not just about one or two things he did. He has some great, great, great feats. But what I feel is important for us to learn today about David is that faith in the commonplace, in the everyday, the day-to-day life, in the mundane, if you like. I don't like that word because it has connotations, but it sounds boring. Mundane, actually the true definition of the word, simply means commonplace, everyday, the day-to-day routine of our lives, in the small things. It was in there we can find two lessons about David. One, we can learn how the commonplace is where we can learn faithfulness. It's in the small things of life, isn't it? But also... It's where we can fall. Two big lessons for us today. So in the everyday, we can build fortitude for the future. We can learn to stand strong in the Lord in the small things. But it's also where we can drop our guard and not even realise we're doing it. Two big lessons. They're the two, two lessons this morning. Can we have the uh, slide up, please, Helen? It's in the small things, which is where we can stand or fall. So pressing on, in the small things, firstly... In the small things, we can learn to be faithful. When we first meet David, he hasn't actually achieved much yet. We just listed a whole load of his great feats. He hasn't achieved much in man's eye. He's the youngest of a family of eight boys, and he's actually been pushed to the side as well. When Samuel comes to Jesse and says, I want to see your sons, line your boys up for me, because God's asked him to anoint one of them as king, and he goes through all seven, and God still hasn't told him it's one of those. There's one missing, isn't there? David, the eighth son, the youngest. And the way he's described, the youngest, the word in the Bible, it almost means runt of the litter. He's the runt of the litter. He's been pushed aside. He's been forgotten, left out, looking after the sheep in the field. Because when Samuel asks for all of his boys, Jesse only lines up seven of them. He doesn't even consider David. But that's just David. He's been pushed to the side, hasn't he? And yet, let's look in Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. This is just after... He's been anointed by Samuel as king. This is how David gets described. This guy, no, before we read this verse, he's barely out of his teens. He's either, a, he's either in his late teens or at the most early 20s. And this is how he gets described. 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. Um, Saul's just asked for someone to come and play a harp for him. So who, who's, who's talented in the harp? Because I need some music to soothe me because he's struggling with an evil spirit. And one of the servants answered... I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. So he's talented. These next few words just blow me away. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man and the Lord is with him. What a description. He hasn't done anything yet. Why is that? It's amazing, isn't it? God had already said, when he asked Samuel to anoint David, he had already said... The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. That's just a few verses earlier to what we just read. God looks at the heart. He knew the heart of David. David's heart is immense. He's already described, he's, he hasn't done anything yet, but not only is he talented musically, he's a brave man, a warrior, he speaks well, fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Where did he learn that? Where did he learn that character? Where did he build that character? He performed great feats, but the key was he was faithful in the small things as well. It's important to have faith in the difficult or in man's eye the impossible. 
because that's where God really works as well. It's important to stand strong in those. But where do you learn to be able to be strong in those moments? How many of us are facing giants right now, like Goliath? Not really, possibly. It might be. But in general, we don't tend to face many Goliaths along the way, do we? But where do we learn to stand against them when we face them? It's in the small things, isn't it? It's in the mundane. It's in the routine, everyday tasks that God has committed to us where we learn. What we learn behind the scenes can be used for greater purposes later on. For example, do we pay our debts quickly? Do we find it easy to break off appointments? Do we let people down easily? Do we keep our promises? Do we help out around the house with the housework? It's in the little things we learn integrity so we can stand strong and be faithful in the big things. I do do the housework, don't look like that. I'll be making sure I do because I'm preaching on it. No, I'm joking. I do anyway. It's in the small things we learn faithfulness ready for the big things, isn't it? Someone wrote a letter to the Inland Revenue once and he says, Dear sir, I haven't been able to sleep because in filling out my tax form return last year, I misrepresented my income. So please find enclosed a cheque for £150. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) That's not integrity. That's trying to get rid of a guilty conscience, isn't it? But here's another story. True story. A guy called James Cash Penny was born in the late 19th century in America. And as a young lad, he worked in a grocery store and he saw the owner mixing two types of coffee, one cheap, one expensive. The owner was mixing them together and selling the new mixture at the higher rate of the higher, most expensive coffee. Little James thought that was very shrewd. He thought that was smart. Good bit of business. Went home and told his dad. His dad immediately pointed out the dishonesty in that. James was so struck by that, he quit his job and vowed to maintain honesty in even the small things, maintain honesty as a rule of his life. He was a Christian and God honoured that. And his business became J.C. Penney, the big department stores across America. Big business, made a lot of money. He lost a lot of money in the Great Depression as well, but he was able to make enough money to be a huge philanthropist. The money he gave away to charity was immense because God honoured his integrity, his faithfulness in the small things. You see? One more story. I know this is a true story of a guy who was asked by his boss. The phone was ringing and his boss said, could you answer that? Tell them I'm not here. He said, no. So no, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. The boss was so struck by that, he actually promoted him because he realised he's a guy I can trust. Faithfulness in the small things makes a difference, doesn't it? Mother Teresa once said, be faithful in the small things because it is in them that your strength lies. This is where we learn faithfulness. It's in the everyday part of life. Don't despise where you are right now. It's where God wants you. Sometimes we can do that. I've done that before. It's where God wants you right now. David knew he had been chosen to be king. He didn't become king for a long, long time. He knew he was set apart for that. He knew he'd been anointed for that. What did he do? How did he react for that? Because he's living under that future promise that he hasn't seen yet. See, there's faith. Because he served humbly in Saul's army. He served Saul. He played the harp for Saul humbly. He didn't stage a coup, try to overthrow the king, go for a big dramatic takeover. He served him humbly, trusting God and being faithful, knowing that if it was right, God would bring it about, which he did. 
the key to David living out those great feats listed in Hebrews 11.33, routing kingdoms, etc., it's because of his heart of worship. Israel's singer of songs, his heart was in the right place already, long before his story, as we know it, really begins. He spent the first few years of his life out in the fields with the sheep, learning to be faithful. In fact, it was there he learned how to fend off bears and lions, as he says later on, so he could stand against Goliath. I wouldn't consider bears and lions as small things. But the principle remains, he was faithful where he was at, and he trusted the Lord. But even after, he practised integrity, in man's eyes, when he didn't have to. Quite often, we see opportunities and occasions where we have opportunities to practice integrity. In man's eyes, they'll be like, why are you bothering? Don't worry about it. Let it slide. It's always in the small things that we learn faithfulness. And for example, like I've already mentioned, David refused to dishonour Saul. Even so much that when opportunity, when Saul's trying to kill him, and David has opportunity to kill Saul, he won't touch him. He said, no, he's he's still God's anointed. If God wants to remove him from that position, God will do it. I'm not doing it. He maintained integrity, even when the opportunity arose. Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, do you remember we've got King Saul, his son Jonathan, his really close brother with David. Jonathan had a little boy called Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, who at the age of five was dropped by his nurse and was crippled. When Saul and Jonathan eventually died together in battle, what did David do? You see, David was made king then, and it was customary in those times to kill off the previous king's sons because they were a threat to your position. David refused to, and he took Mephibosheth in and treated him as his own son. Mephibosheth got to eat at his table. It's integrity in the smaller things that make the difference. We learn faithfulness in the small things, not just the big things. If you want to stand in the big things, have you been faithful in the small things already? But secondly, it's in the small things that we can fail, we can fall. It's in the everyday routines that we learn faithfulness, but it's also where we can drop our guard. Life creeps in, life takes over, and without even realising it, we can drop our guard. Because everything is really hunky-dory for David for a long time. God's favour is clearly upon him, his heart's clearly in the right place. But then what happens? 2 Samuel 11. is a guy you can have so much respect for and then you read this chapter and it's just heartbreaking. From the first verse. We're just going to read the first five, five verses. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, this is his general, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He remained in his palace. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is, Uriah is one of David's mighty men. He's one of his soldiers. 
This is his wife that he's seen. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. It's heartbreaking. This doesn't just happen, does it? It says in brackets, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. It was her time in the month, she purified herself, she cleansed herself. The point of it being written in there is because what happens next is clearly David's fault, not Uriah's. Because then it goes to say, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant, quite clearly with his child. You've got David, he's riding on success, he's defeated a number of nations. He's not at war, he's letting others do that for him. And he's at home alone. <coughs> he's enjoying the sunshine on a drowsy early evening or late afternoon as sometimes it gets interpreted. Late afternoon into evening, he's lazing on his roof, taking it easy, and he spots Bathsheba. The, cast, the, the palace is about, about 50 foot high, so it's that kind of distance. You can see quite clearly the people around him. And he spots her bathing. That's where it should have stopped. Shouldn't <laughs> it? Of course. Affairs start with a look. That's all it takes. Here is where the mundane, the commonplace, the everyday is an opportunity for faithfulness or for sin. It's in our leisure time that our guards are likely to be down. We don't always realise, do we? Idleness and boredom are different to leisure. Leisure is allowed. You're allowed to have leisure time. It's good to have Sabbath time, to read a good book, watch the Grand Prix, listen to some music, go down the pub with some friends. Leisure time's fine. But it's very different to idleness and boredom, isn't it? Because it's when we're being idle, when we're being bored, that the doors are ajar for temptation to whisper through. And we don't realise our guards are down. In fact, I suggest never assume your guard isn't down. Probably assume it is at all times. So you're keeping an eye out for it. Now ask yourself, am I ever in a place where my guard is down? Think about during your every, everyday week, your average week. Are there occasions when I'm on my own and my guard is down? We need to ask ourselves these things, don't I? What am I in danger of? What are my danger zones? Times, places, people? Am I focusing on God, like David in the early years? Or am I dropping my guard, like David now? A man who I have huge respect for because of where his heart was, he was still capable of this. None of us are incapable. We think, I've never had an affair. I determined never to have an affair. But I'm never going to say I'm never going to have an affair because I don't want to assume I'm above that. I want to honour my wife by accepting that I'm a sinner. I want to be aware of the dangers and avoid it. Do you see the difference? Billy Graham once described, um, it's talking about men and lust generally because it can be a big problem for men. Billy Graham, a great preacher, once said, the first look is just a look. The second look is lust. That double take. And I determine, if I see a pretty girl down the street, I determine not to look back. I don't want to, because it starts with a look. And I want to honour Jenny with that. But that's all it takes. We must never assume our guard is down. David was avoiding his duty. He was supposed to be at war, but he sent others to do it for him. And he opened himself up to lazing on his roof, the Iron Age equivalent of the internet. Just wandering around, looking around on his roof. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And he finds his Bathsheba. That's all it took. And when he discovers she's pregnant, see, one sin leads to another. He tries to cover it up. 
He calls Uriah home from the front line and tries to get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. Because if he can sleep with his wife and she gets pregnant, oh, Uriah's got to be having a baby. Uriah's going to be a daddy. Cover it up. Uriah is more of a man of integrity in this moment. He refuses to. Because the deal is, when you're on duty, you don't go home and sleep with your wife. So he refused to. So then David tries to get him drunk so he'll go home and sleep with his wife and cover up what's happened. Uriah still refuses to. He sleeps at David's front door. He won't do it. All respect for the man. What does David do? He arranges his murder. One sin leads to another. Not only does he do that, the letter that David writes to get Uriah put right on the front line and also explains all of you withdraw back so he'll get killed. Uriah, unwittingly, is the man who carries that letter to his boss. And yet the, that's not the David we were reading about earlier, is it? He wouldn't be capable of that, would he? But he was. It's all it takes. It's in the small things. Bathsheba mourns, but she becomes David's wife in the end. Another one of his wives. One sin so easily leads to another. Just think about the Jewish leaders. I was thinking about this morning in my quiet time. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' time, they, they allowed John the Baptist to be killed. They then asked for Jesus to be killed. Then they killed Stephen themselves. See the difference? Thin end of the wedge. One thing leads to another. We've got to be so careful, haven't we? But, did God turn a blind eye to this? Of course he didn't. He sends Nathan the prophet. Have we got, have we got time to read it? Yes. Quickly, 2 Samuel 12. Just the next chapter. David thinks he's got away with it. Because now Uriah's dead. He's got himself a new wife. And hey, she's pregnant. Honeymoon baby. Thinks he's got away with it. But now look what happens. Because the previous... Previous um, verse says, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sees everything, doesn't he? Let's read the first, just, just about seven verses of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Uh oh. It's been found out. David, as king, could have turned Nathan the prophet out. He could have turfed him out of his get out of my palace, don't want you. Out. Could have done. Buried his head in the sand. Or, conversely, he could have abdicated as king and lived a life of self flagellation, beating himself up for what he'd done. He didn't do that either. 
Thankfully, he recognised what the right response was. He recognised grace. God confronting him through the prophet Nathan was his grace. Not condemnation, it was conviction, it's different. And David recognised his grace and he fell on it in all humility. He ends up writing Psalm 51, which is one of my favourite psalms. It's so profound, so packed with truth. It's not a beating myself up psalm. It is, I'm a sinner and I repent. And he turns it back into sacrifice and into worship. He falls forward into worship. David understood the difference between conviction and simply being found out. He was truly convicted and he was truly sorry for what he'd done and he repented for it before God. Back in the new year, uh, Jenny and I and Amy we were driving down to her brother's down at Andover, driving down the 303 where it is. It's quite a fast day road. There's a bit of a hill and a curve on it. And I was coming down there. I didn't realise what I was doing. My world of my own, usually am when I'm driving, that's the trouble. I was doing about, didn't really, before I realised it, I was doing 85, 90 down this A road. And about 50 yards in front of me, I suddenly saw, I wasn't even looking, there was a police camera van with the door wide open and a big camera in it and a man sitting behind it looking right at me. Got me. Nothing I could do about it. I didn't even have time to break. I beat myself up about that for a couple of days. I was really, really angry with myself, really fed up about it. It really got me down. Trouble was, it wasn't because I'd been doing 85. Because I've been caught. I've, I've learned something from that, I'll tell you. David, thankfully, his reaction could have been he was sorry that he'd been caught out. That's not conviction and that's not repentance. David genuinely was sorry because of what he had done. It's different. I know people who appear all repentant, but you, can, you just know it's not because they're sorry for what they've done. They're sorry that they've been caught out. It's different. Very, very different. David's life after this event was never the same again. The child actually died. God's judgment came on David. David never knew the same favour as before. He knew some, but it was never the same again. Sin has consequences. We must never forget that. But David knew God's forgiveness and he fell forward again into a life of worship. There was genuine conviction there. So in the small things lay the key to David's great successes. But it's also in the small things where lay the moment of his greatest fall. The small things are where we can stand or fall. The small things are where we grow for when the big battles come. How could David stand before a giant as a teenager, 20-year-old? How could he do that when all the other soldiers were quaking and hiding behind their tents? Because of his faithfulness in the small things that he knew God was on his side. He had fostered that relationship with God and he could stand firm. Which is why, despite his fall, he repented, he turned his life around again, turned his life back into a life of worship. He still made mistakes, but he changed. Which is why his final words to his son and his successor Solomon, also Bathsheba's son later on. 1 Kings chapter 2, last one to turn to for now. This is his last words just before he dies. He's made Solomon king. David understood the importance of the small things and he passes it on to Solomon. Just the first few verses of 1 Kings 2. 
When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And he goes on to give some actual uh, other instructions about killing a couple of people off, but I'm not going to go into those, but it is about guilt, bloodshed, and it was appropriate. But he's talking about the small things to Solomon. Walk in the Lord's ways. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Showing yourself a man isn't always being macho and down the pub every night. Showing yourself a man is doing the right thing, being God's man in the moment, and woman. Same principle. But doing the right thing in each moment, including the small things. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways. If he was walking in his ways in the small things, he wouldn't have done what he did with Bathsheba and he wouldn't have killed a man. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. The key to his success was walking with God in the little as well as the big. Jesus was faithful in the small things, wasn't he? His attitude to money and sex, just doing conversation with people, he was faithful. He never let his guard down in his speech, in his compassion for other people, just the small things. He gave precious time to people. He stopped and spent time with people, even if he had somewhere else to be. He withdrew regularly to spend time with God. In the everyday routine, he made sure there was time with God. How are your devotions? How is your prayer life? Keep on asking yourself that. The first 30 years of Jesus' life, what was he doing? Being faithful in the small things, wasn't he? You see, it's not always when circumstances come to a head that we give in to temptation. We can sometimes think there's this big, obvious temptation and I'm going to go, no. It's the small things. We don't even realise our guard is down that we give in sometimes. It can also be when we're at home, when the battle is raging somewhere else and someone else is fighting it even for you. We can be at home and our guard is down and we're actually at our weakest and we don't realise. Be careful. Someone prayed once, Dear Lord, so far today, I'm doing all right. I have not gossiped, lost my temper, been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish or self-indulgent. I have not whined, cursed or eaten any chocolate. However, I am going to get out of bed in a few minutes and I'll need a lot more help after that. Amen. (laughs) We need Jesus, don't we? Every single day, in the small days as well as the big days. We can't do this on our own. We think we can and we can't. A A man like David with his heart after God still dropped the ball in a massive, massive way. Never assume it won't be you. Every single day, keep your guard up. We need the Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us. We need to foster our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. We should never disregard him. We should be open. And David speaks in Psalm 51 about a broken and a contrite heart is what God loves. Contrite means bruised. Your heart is bruised. So when the Holy Spirit pokes it, you feel it. You know that conviction. It helps you stand strong when you need to because you know something's not right here. 
Jesus said in Luke 16, he's primarily talking about money, but the principle applies right across the board. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. It's in the small things. Faithfulness is not determined by the amount entrusted to a person. Faithfulness is determined by the character of the person in the first place. David's key to his success lay in his relationship with God. Keep asking yourself, how are your devotions? How is your prayer life? If you have relationship problems with other people, before you start pointing the finger, look first to your relationship with Jesus. Because that might be where the problem is. Because it's in him we find acceptance when we failed. It's all about the cross. It's made possible about the cross. In Jesus we find hope for the future. Despite our circumstances, it's all because of the cross. We are secure in the cross, in what Jesus has done for us, in his death and his resurrection. In him we find reasons for the now, for the present as well. In our circumstances, may not be going the way we want. But if you're sticking close to him and you're trusting him, you will be fine. It's all made possible in the cross. Real faith is born. We're going through this Hebrews 11 series about real faith. We can think about these big, great Goliath events and Noah and his ark and so on. Real faith is born in the everyday. It's in the small things. Genuine faith is fostered and cultured in relationship with Jesus in the commonplace, in the day-to-day. Biblical faith is rooted deep in the small things. If you're faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in the big things. Small things add up to the big picture. It'd be good for us to pray just for a couple of minutes, but just, just for a sec, um, we'll just spend a minute or so just thinking to ourselves, where, where do I need to make sure I'm being faithful in the small things? And then I'll close in prayer. But just think to yourself, in my, just picture your everyday week, your average day. Am I, dropping the, am I dropping the ball somewhere? Am I dropping my guard? Do I need to spend more time with him? Do I need to decide to spend more time with him this week? Where in the day-to-day am I being faithful? In which case, good for you. Thank him for it. Thank him that you're able to. But where in the day-to-day am I not being faithful and I need to do something about it? Don't despise the small things. Because this is where our faith grows. Just for a minute or so, just consider these things and then I'll pray. Jesus, we need you. We need your help. All too easily behind closed doors when we're on our own, we cannot bother to spend time with you when actually we've had plenty of time to. And we can drop our guards. Lord, we want to be faithful in the small things. We want to honour you. We want to worship with our lives, not just with our mouths. But Lord, we need your help to do that. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it in our own strength. 
Lord, by your Holy Spirit, may you show us where we need to change things, where we need to change routines, habits, decisions and attitudes. Lord, provoke us and challenge us. We don't want to walk away from your word. We don't. We shouldn't walk away from your word and not do something about it. So Lord, help each one of us, myself included, may we know what needs to be changed, know what needs to be done and actually do something about it, Lord. But we need your Holy Spirit to do that. Holy Spirit, help us. It's for your glory. We love you. We thank you for what you've done, like we were saying earlier. But Lord, we want to honour that with things we do, not just things we say. So Lord, help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Teas and coffees will be served. The uh, cell notes will be online. There's some questions on there for the cell groups as well, along this theme. I'm going to loiter up here for a little while. If you want prayer about anything that's come up during this morning, or for anything else as well, come and find me. Or maybe if David didn't mind hanging around just for a couple of minutes, we'll be here. If no one comes up, that's not a problem. We'll go and get a coffee. But we'll